One of my, uh, well, my most oft question, the most oft asked question of me is none of your business, but the second, <laughs> particularly this week, has been my view of fundamentalism. And uh, given the uh, incredible reaction of Shiite fundamentalism to a book, um, I thought it might be important for me to readdress the issue of a, my view or a psychological view of fundamentalism. Uh, in October of 1987, the Houston Forum asked me to write and deliver a paper on the psychological view of fundamentalism, which I did and which I have available today. Now, the reason I'm going to read this is for three reasons. The first one is, some of you marvel, marvel at my ability to speak for 45 minutes without notes. I can do it with notes. <laughs> and I wanted to show you that. And the, the, the second, <laughs> second reason is for the obvious reason, and that is it's a timely issue to kind of get back into this phenomenon of fundamentalism and as the paper will evolve, you'll see I'm not just talking about Christian fundamentalism, but I'm talking about the psychological issue of fundamentalism. Now, the third reason is because it integrates, interestingly enough, as I reread it this weekend, it integrates a series I just completed on parenting. And if you look at uh, some of the issues that are unearthed in this paper on fundamentalism, you'll know something of the nature of parenting. Uh, and, and the issues that we unearthed in looking at the confessions of an adolescent parent. The title of this paper is A Psychological View of Fundamentalism. In a dialogue between a religious scientist and an unreligious theologian, John Updike, in his book Roger's Version, speaks of religion's dark side. The young scientist Dale argues the devil is doubt. He's what make, he is what makes us reject the gifts God gives us. He, the devil, makes us spurn the life we've been given. Funny, said Roger, the professor. I would have said, looking at recent history, and for that matter, at some of our present-day ayatollahs and furors, the opposite. The devil is the absence of doubt. He's what pushes people into suicide bombings, into setting up extermination camps. Doubt may give your dinner a funny taste, but it's faith that goes out and kills people. Another timely quotation. There's always present for any lecturer a baited trap of self-righteousness. Most particularly when one is lecturing about a group or movement of which he does not consider himself a member. I begin with acknowledgement of such danger and will seek from the onset to avoid such a snare by presenting a thesis that each of us has a fundamentalist within our own psyche. My task today is to discuss American religious fundamentalism from a religio-psychological perspective. Rather than beginning with a definitive explanation of the term fundamentalism, let me begin with the problem to which fundamentalism is a solution. The human situation is one of freedom within finitude. The human predicament is limited freedom 
coupled with limited understanding. Life is one existential choice after another. These existential choices are presented to us as problems to be solved. Solutions to the problems are necessary for survival. The question from the beginning of the human journey is, what is the authority for my decisions, and what are the resources of this authority? The problem that fundamentalism addresses is the problem of authority. Let's look at psychological development in a relationship to authority, and then we will be better prepared to look at fundamentalism as one alternative to the problem of authority. Human consciousness evolves. Life like a sun rising out of the darkness, the human awareness of himself and his universe emerges from the horizon at birth and seeks wholeness as the goal of its journey. Human consciousness probably begins at conception, but at least emerges with the fetus from the birth canal. The infant's awareness or consciousness of himself and his environment begins with a complex set of psychic impulses known as energy in the center of science consciousness. The center of consciousness has been identified by Freud and Jung as the ego, the I am. The ego emerges in developmental stages. Throughout the early stages of development, the ego has as its goal survival and growth. The first question asked by the ego of its environment is, what are the rules for making it in this arena? The ego will, in the beginning, gather information through instinct and appetite. Whatever behavior will fill this physical and psychic hunger will be the adaptive behavior of the ego. And what or whoever provides the nurture for the needs of the ego will be the authority for the ego. John McQuarrie in his book Search of, In Search of Humanity writes that rather than referring to the human as a human being, we ought to refer to this being as a human becoming. The human organism is a psychosomatic system. The psyche is all about us that's not flesh and blood. The soma is flesh and blood. The system is an integrated one and indivisible except for purpose of description. The interdependence of the psyche and soma is so profound that neither system will prosper without the other. Nurture is needed for both body and and psyche in order for the human to survive, grow, and become. The word nurture derives from the Latin to suck. For the infant, the early physical and psychological dependency begins with those who provide the nurture. The nurture is both for the physiological and psychological need to survive and prosper. The ego then adopts at its earliest stage an authority figure or figures from those who meet his needs. Our physical and psychic dependency begins with parents or parental figures who become the authorities for behavior because of the dependency for nurture. These are what Freud called super-ego figures. Authority in this context means the one or ones in whom the ego invests power to determine right from wrong, limits of behavior, problem solving, sources of truth, meaning, value, and identity. 
At this stage of development, the ego is undifferentiated, which is to say that the ego has little, if any, identity apart from ego authority. The ego will seek, through experiment and experience, to find its own identity apart from or to differentiate from the authority, but will only do so if and when it can survive on its own. This is an evolutionary process. This is a human being becoming human. The will of the ego is to separate or individuate. The first stage of ego development is growth through the child seeing herself as a subject rather than an object. The personal references reveal the beginnings of a differentiated ego when the child says, Mary did that. She sees herself as something apart from herself when she says, I did that. And she reveals that she now sees herself as subject, differentiated from any other authority. Ego, I am. The differentiation is coupled with separation from maternal and parental authority. In broad terms, for the child ego state, authority rests with those who provide the nurture, parents or superego surrogate parents. This stage runs until pre-adolescence. Values and behavior are determined by parents or parental authority figures such as teachers, grandparents, uncles, aunts, doctors, clergy. At about age seven or eight, the child begins to shift authority for values and behavior from parents to peers. By age 14 or so, the authority for the adolescent ego rests in The peer group tells the adolescent how to dress, what to think, and how to behave. This is a necessary transition of authority in order for the ego to individuate. The adolescent, by necessary development, will need to render the parental world impotent. Adolescents do this by making the parents into fools. This is very healthy time for everybody but the parents. <laughs> the longer developmental stage is a process of the ego differentiating from the peer group and accepting authority for itself. This stage of the ego looking to itself for authority runs the rest of one's life of individuation. Remembering now that the hallmark of the human situation is freedom with limited understanding. Remembering further that life is one existential choice after another. And further, that these choices present themselves as problems, and problem solving is necessary for survival. We now begin to understand that the ego continues to seek authority when it fears the responsibility of pain, mistake, or failure. The greatest threat to the ego is the threat of not being or being wrong, or being in pain. Fundamentalism is a psychological and religious system that places the authority for decision and choice on one primary and exclusive source or system. In Christian fundamentalism, that source is the Bible. I hasten to add and qualify that Christian fundamentalism is only one form of this phenomenon. There are many forms of fundamentalism in many systems and disciplines. For the problem is one of authority. 
which is not limited to Christianity or to religion. There are fundamentalists in legal profession, political, social, medical. In all systems and disciplines, there is a need for authority incumbent in the question, who holds the authority for decision-making in the human situation of freedom and limited understanding? When you have free choice and a choice with limited understanding, an adolescent ego always looks to an authority. Fundamentalism is an approach by the ego to invest authority in one clear, definable source. Returning now to the problem of authority as a psychological phenomenon, we can place fundamentalism as having its roots in human nature, not in religion, unless you see those two as coincidental. Bringing us back to my presenting thesis that each of us has a fundamental ego state within our own psyche. For there is that residual need in the differentiated ego for someone or something that will provide stability to an emerging ego faced with a myriad of choices in a pluralistic world. Psychological life is not linear. Psychological development is not always coincidental with chronological age. In developmental staging, the ego develops in a pattern of uniqueness in a combination of heredity and environment. Chronology moves on, even if psychology or psychological development doesn't. One can have a chronological age of 50 and a psychological development age of more or less, generally less. Further, we do not begin and end a stage of development. We simply accumulate them. We never end childhood. We continue to carry the child ego state with us no matter what our chronological age. Therefore, it is possible for any human being at any age to act childish. Therefore, in each of us, there remains a need for some authority. The ego develops a differentiated state. In simple terms, it is the ability to see the difference between the ego and another, as well as the ego's ability to see the variety of roles that each person must fulfill as an adult. The ego must be able to differentiate its role as child from its role as parent, and its role as parent from that of child. The ego must be able to differentiate its role as professional from its role as friend. By the time we reach adulthood, the ego must be able to differentiate between and among child, parent, brother, sister, friend, professional, male, female. For each of us may be all of these. Such complexity threatens the ego, and it continually looks for an authority to help with decisions and actions. Would it not be Self-righteous for a group to judge the fundamentalists for seeking authority in the Bible and at the same time invite an authority to help explain the nature of fundamentalism. We are a people who want authorities to help us fix, decide, explain, and solve everything from automotive, automotive breakdowns to nervous breakdowns. Let us not be too judgmental about one who seeks an authority to make a decision. More pepper to the pot. The ego's need to survive is so strong that it will repress anything that threatens its survival or place of power in the psyche. A functional definition of the ego 
is that the ego is made up of all those things about myself that I am able to tolerate consciously. Those things that the ego perceives to be of threat to its survival or power, it represses or forgets. That area, or dark mirror of the soul, is named by Jung the shadow. The shadow is so threatening to the ego consciousness that consciousness seeks to suppress any threatening information and does so much of the time through projections of these interior, inferior qualities onto some tangible exterior reality group or person. To our point, the ego is infamous for its need to divide black from white, right from wrong, good from bad, keeping the white right and good and projecting the black wrong and bad onto others who are different onto others who threaten the authority system that has given identity to the ego. To our authority problem and fundamentalist nature of the psyche, the ego seeks to find an authoritative and clear definition of right, wrong, good, and bad. Gray is not a color that the ego wears with ease. Necessity will not suffer freedom to leisure. Therefore, Necessity is constantly calling for choices, decisions, responses, reaction. The ego is in the dizziness of freedom. The ego wants to know what's right, who's right, what's good, and will seek an authority that is predecided so that the ego must not have to decide in every situation what's right. The ego is assuaged to know what's always right and what's always wrong. In its peace, though, it never grows. So now, in at least two assumptions of the psyche and in conscious center of the ego, we have seen needs for authority. One is developmental staging, where the ego seeks to look for something to help it grow. The other is the need to discriminate choices under a necessity of decision. With our remaining time, let us now look at religious fundamentalism. The word religion has two similar and related meanings. From the Latin religio, the word means to tie back or to tie up. Using tie back, the word implies something is broken. The function of religion, then, is to make what is broken tie or bind what is fractured, to put it back together. The second possible meaning is to tie up which assumes something's loose, estranged, lost, disconnected. Religion in this sense means to tie up, as in mooring a boat. The word derelict, derelict means a boat without a rudder. Religion means also to connect to something solid, that which is estranged, lost, without direction, derelict. Religion functions in human nature to heal what is broken, Unite that which is estranged, give direction to which that which is lost. It's a setup for the ego. The many religions seek to heal and lead the human solar psyche to wholeness. Each religion has its sacred story, set of symbols, and language system. Christianity is no different. The Bible houses the authority for all three. It includes the story, the basis for the symbol, and assumptions of the language system. Clearly, the Bible is the authority for Christian decisions and Christian actions. 
The question remains, are there other authorities? Is the Bible the only authority for Christian decision-making? What is a place of tradition? If baptism is an initiatory rite of belonging to a family, what is the authority as to when we baptize the person, where we baptize the person, how we baptize the person? The Bible, as authority, seems to have two or three interpretations. Tradition, therefore, has interpreted when to baptize. What is the place of tradition, therefore? That is, how has the church interpreted or translated the scripture through history in developing its own institutions, its own set of symbols, its own moral and ethical value system? Secondly, in addition to what is the place of tradition, what is the place of reason? That is, how has evolution of human consciousness affected interpretation of scripture through such disciples as philosophy, science, and psychology? And what is the place of experience as an authority? When one seeks authority for truth, does one look only to scripture or does one look to tradition? One's own experience or to one's own reason? Are there other norms besides scripture for decision-making for Christians? Or do these other norms outside of scripture delude the mind from the primary authority? This is the issue and this is the question. Another issue for religion is the place and nature of revelation. Does God, as ultimate authority, reveal truth apart from the ultimate authority, the Bible? And which is the more ultimate, God or the Bible? And what's the difference? Fundamentalism clings and claims that the Bible is the word of God. Does God reveal his word apart from the Bible? which leads then to the essence of the Christian fundamentalist, which is biblical fundamentalism, meaning that God is the ultimate authority. The Bible is the word of God. In order to protect the purity of the revealed word, the Bible must be interpreted according to certain fundamentals. One of those fundamentals is literal interpretation and inerrancy. That, of course, means that Scripture contains no errors. The Bible is the inerrant, literal word of God. There are shades and degrees of fundamentalist interpretation, to be sure. They carry the same inconsistencies that a more literal and liberal critical tradition does. But in essence, this posture rests its authority for decision-making, choices and behavior on the word of God as revealed in the Holy Bible. Though this lecture is not an attempt to precisely defined Christian fundamentalism, it is important to indicate where final authority rests for this religious movement. For as earlier discussed, much of the psychological motive rests in the need for authority. Risking generalization then, why is it that fundamentalism has become so popular in the last two centuries, and more especially in the contemporary decades? A place to begin is with the age of reason, empiricism, and the scientific revolution. When the how questions begin to compete with the why questions, theology began to have to defend its previously unquestioned position. For instance, the question of why the world was created 
left theology to conclude from Scripture that God sought out of generosity to image himself in creation. But the age of reason brought the question of how did he do it? And it came in conflict with the Bible's explanation. Theology had its authority questioned. Two claims were available to theology. One, to add the authority of reason to the authority of the Bible. Or two, to retrench in clear opposition and claim that anything contrary to Scripture had no authority. And it was the opposite of God. Fundamentalism opted for the latter. Fundamentalism is a reaction to the age of reason. Another factor in the rise of fundamentalism is the emergence of a global village and a pluralistic society. With the advent of transportation and communication and the revolutions incumbent in both, there are simply more choices readily available to fill the human need for direct for healing and direction. The fundamentalist movement has become much more militant in order to compete with alternative authorities. Remember, of course, that the ego seeks to survive and retain its power. Clarity and certainty tend to alleviate anxiety for an ego in a world of confusion and choice. The more choices and alternatives for authority, the more militant the cry of those who seek and see security in one authority against all others. In the general population, it is a simple fact that maturity takes a long time to achieve. Such maturity is found in an ego state that lives secure in the midst of doubt, choices, confusion, and alternatives. If we take a simple linear conclusion, it takes a long time to become mature, therefore, in a time sequence, there are few that are mature, Therefore, we can conclude that immaturity is in the main. In simple numeric proportion, in times of stress and confusion, movements which offer right, truth, and good as clear choice on historic authority will be more popular than those who live into ambiguity or doubt. I believe this says more about human nature than the nature of fundamentalism. For fundamentalism seems to be on the rise in all religions worldwide. In one sense, this is a reaction to the insecurity of pluralism and nuclear threat. The fundamental mind, that is, ego center, is not satisfied with ambiguity in any arena and will seek to establish a theocracy in every realm with the single authority as supreme. This is the nature of human nature. In order to complete a necessarily sketchy outline of the psychology of religious fundamentalism, we must turn to the dark side of this movement. Let's listen to Updike again. The young scientist seeking clear authority, unambiguous clarity, in a post-adolescent developmental stage, in a post-age-of-reason world, argues to the mature, unreligious, but wise theologian, the devil is doubt. 
He's what makes us reject the gifts God gives us. He makes us spurn the life we've been given. Funny, said Roger. I would have said, looking at recent history, and for that matter, some of our present-day ayatollahs and furors, the opposite. The devil is the absence of doubt. He's what pushes people into suicide bombing, into setting up extermination camps. Doubt may give your dinner a funny taste, but it's faith that goes out and kills. Perhaps we understand that statement a little better now. In the theory of opposites, which is a theory developed by Jung and analytical psychology, the psyche is made up of compensatory systems of opposites, male and female, ego and shadow, consciousness and unconsciousness. The opposites live in tension with one another to create an existential anxiety, which is a creative tension of opposites. We must become more than either of the opposites. We do so not by repressing or rejection, but by integration, so that we see both, and this requires awareness. That is the sign of a mature self-centered rather than an egocentric individual. It is very difficult for the ego to hold a paradox consciously. How can two things both be right at the same time? That is, if one of the opposites is disowned and rejected, it doesn't leave the system. It simply takes on other masks in order to be acceptable to the ego. Or in desperation, one opposite will attack and overtake its other opposite. If you have a rejected murderer within you, then it may murder you. An example of this, in general terms, is that a virtue will become its opposite. We have examples of that in Christianity, where we say that we have a virtue of love and acceptance and peace. It's such a powerful and universal virtue that we want everyone to have it. If you don't accept it, we will kill you. A danger in differentiating all right and all wrong, and all good and all evil from one's own ego, as its ego will say, I'll take the right and the correct and the good, and I will project all the rest onto you others. Another danger in differentiating all right and all wrong is that sometimes that which has been repressed will become stronger in its need to make itself known and will overtake the entire system. The ego will make such statements as, I don't know what came over me. The answer to which is, it was you. <laughs> A system that denies the opposite or objectifies the opposite or even worse, personifies it in somebody else by saying, he is the devil or by saying, the devil, he made me do it. Or the devil, she made, depending on your inclusive language. <laughs> he is the one, she is the one that caused me to do these things. So, one dark side of the fundamentalist ego state is the projection of one's own self onto another. 
so that the ego never takes responsibility for its own actions. It's the devil or the evil ones. A second danger in the phenomenon of the shadow projection where other people or other movements are asked to carry one's own evil so that we see them being different from us. That's what was a frustration in the parable Jesus taught about the workers in the vineyard. In this parable, some went to work at seven in the morning or sunup, worked all day. Some came at noon, some came at four o'clock, and some came at quitting time. The ones who were at work all day grumbled and said, you mean you've made them equal to us? This is very difficult for egocentric personality to see that they may be made equal to us, though they are different from us, though they might be lazy or uneducated or black or female. And that leads to a third dark side of the fundamentalist view in each of us. Not the them versus us, but the fundamentalist view in each of us is the exclusivity and divisiveness of this ego state where we exclude all who are different from us, from our fellowship. There is that cartoon in our coffee bar where a lady stoically is speaking to her husband saying, don't speak to them, Bertrand, they don't go to our church. <laughs> Another dark and dangerous side of fundamentalism is what we might call demagoguery or quackery. It is this. If we have a singular authority for decision-making, which is the Bible, and there are those who rise up willing to be the interpreters in the community of the Bible, if the community will agree that they can be the interpreters of the Bible, then they become the Bible for the community. This makes them the authority on the authority. And this makes exploitation possible. For the interpreters begin to become the single authority for the ego. And that case is worse than the first. This is demagoguery. It can also be quackery. Anytime you have mystery and money, you're going to have quackery. So there are those who are the interpreters of the authority who become the authority and they abuse the power vested in them with the immature egos of those who follow. We have more examples of that than we have time to enumerate. And many of them are contemporary. The Bible is the word of God. It is our authority. I will tell you what the word of the God says. I will be your authority. I will prosper, and you won't. A fifth dark side to this fundamentalist mindset in each of us is regression or a repression of growth and maturity. The cost of maturity is to center one's authority in oneself, and it's a big price to pay. That means living more comfortably with confusion, ambiguity, contradiction, paradox, and doubt. That's difficult for immature folk to do. And there are more of us than there are of them. Those seem to me to be and have been a part of the human predicament from its beginning. 
the elimination of these things that cause confusion and complexity would mean the elimination of growth. To eliminate for the ego any doubt, any difference, any contradiction, any ambiguity, any paradox would limit the ability to problem solve, which evidently is one of the ways by which we grow. So in a danger of generalization, go on an authority figure. The movement for the human being is from dependency in childhood to independence in adolescence to interdependence in maturity. Interdependence means that I'm an individual apart from you and separate from God. I have some authority and therefore responsibility for my own life. In simple theological terms, my disagreement with the fundamentalist posture might be addressed in this simple formula. The fundamentalist believes that I must turn my life over to another authority. My theological view is that God has turned my life over to me. It is a fundamental difference. The authority and responsibility for my own life I am now interdependent about rather than independent from any responsibility or authority. That is, as immature in some ways as being totally dependent. I move from dependency to independency to interdependency. And this journey is one for a human being as well as a relationship. I'd add one small piece of wisdom to decision making. That we make so many decisions at a time when we are independent, that we should be reserved for times when we are interdependent. In other words, so many of our decisions about who we are and our values are made when we're children or adolescents rather than as adults. But there's some authority always hanging over us saying that adult decisions are not acceptable here. If we take, for example, the ego differentiation differentiating from parental authority and switching authority from parent to peer group, that post-adolescent decision is, can I begin to take authority from my own life apart from this peer group? In other words, the team, the club, the group, the fraternity. That's the time that we're seeking independence, and it's so threatening to the ego that the ego refuses to go into the world alone and chooses a life partner at that stage of ego development called holy matrimony. Most of our decision about our life's partner is made out of an ego threat of being alone. And the formula is difficult to solve. Now let me summarize very quickly. The tension that is created for me is to begin a discussion of fundamentalism by talking about us versus them. To take responsibility for for the fact that there is a fundamentalist in each of us, because this is the nature of the psyche. It is the need to ask the question, where's the authority for me? An alternative is placing the authority in one place, clearly defined without exception. Another alternative is to add other authorities to the one authority, including oneself, and to make a decision in the dark mirror reflected from a variety of authorities rather than the clear 
crystal reflection of one authority called the Bible or the preacher. The issue that differentiates fundamentalist Christians from other kinds of Christians is where does the authority lie? We spread the authority, if we, we spread the authority all along the realm in Christianity. We do so with tradition, with experience, and with reason. We can put it in one bishop in Rome. We can put it in one congregation. We can put it in the Bible. We can put it in ourselves. Each of these seems to be limited. We can take some authority for ourselves in relationship to the others. The problem, like most of human nature, seems to be clearer than the solution. But there is something incumbent in the nature of human beings being presented with freedom that is limited and knowledge that is limited and making choices and decisions which are problems to be solved out of which comes change and growth. If we eliminate the existential doubt, we eliminate the growth. That's the darkness. My paper ends here, but let me speak to the contemporary situation with the Ayatollah in reference to this, and that is the fundamentalist trap is that the code within the Quran is that death is a punishment for the blasphemer. It's clear. It's precise. It has no ambiguity, has no doubt, and it must be executed. Now this comes from a religion of peace and love. This is the problem of fundamentalism. It is logical. That's its problem. Religion and the world, as I experience it, is not always so. Fundamentalism is a part of human nature. Each of us has, within some system in which we exist, a fundamentalist ego state that wants to rest the clear, precise answer in some logical, palatable authority, rule, system, personality. We do it all the time. Robert's rules of order. Somebody on bridge. It seems to me as long as it's applying the parliamentary procedure or bridge, it probably works fairly well. But when you take the rules and apply them to macro, complex, confusing, paradoxical, and difficult situations, then we all need to pray for the grace of God as we make our decisions. I, for one, will take the greater doubt over the lesser certainty. It seems to make folks live longer. Amen.